All right, turn with me in your Bibles again to Psalm 95. Um, I've spent the, the last few weeks contemplating uh, the subject matter of worship as we work our way through chapter 22 of the 1689, and it's captured my attention and my, my thoughts over the past several weeks. And Psalm 95 is a proof text um, from chapter 22 that grabbed my attention, and I wanted to focus on that this morning as we look at the basics of biblical worship. I say basics because this is an incredibly expansive topic, so we're, <clears throat> we're limited in our scope of what we're looking at, um, but, but this chapter or this psalm um, covers exactly that, the basics. So uh, if you take a look at Psalm 95, and we're going to look at the first eight verses, this is a psalm that's written by David, and that is validated in Hebrews chapter 4 where the writer of Hebrews, I believe Paul, specifically calls out David as the author of this psalm. And it's also messianic in nature, right? Messianic meaning it has an eye looking forward to the Messiah. Because they, uh, excuse me, Paul, as he's writing Hebrews 4, elaborates on the fact in verse 9, he says this, so then there remains a Sabbath, capital S, rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him or from his. The Sabbath there picturing, obviously, um, the person and work of Christ. So there's some key takeaways from the psalm that I want to draw our attention to this morning. Um, and there are five points that are related to those, the eight verses that we want to look at. The first thing I want to do, though, is give the historical context to this psalm. What was what was the the nature and the uh, the original context around which David is writing this? And we'll do a quick um, Old Testament survey as we establish the context here. This psalm is written around the events that transpired in Exodus chapter seventeen. Uh, I checked my notes. I did not teach on that chapter. I think that was your chapter, Mark as we were going through our study in, um, in Exodus. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 17. We're going to spend just a few minutes in Exodus. I want to give you the backdrop of this, of this psalm as we get uh, the context here of what the, the writer is teaching us. In Psalm, or excuse me, Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, it says, All the congregation of the people, people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to him, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa, which means temptation, and Meribah, which means strife or contention, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So this is Exodus 17. We're about six weeks into Israel's exodus. And we go back a little bit further. I want you to turn back just a few pages to Exodus chapter 6. <clears throat> we know the story very well. Exodus, or Israel had been in bondage for how many years? Anybody? Thank you. 400 years in bondage to Egypt. They were led there because God providentially brought them through Joseph into the land of Egypt because of a famine over 400 years previous. They began to prosper. You remember that God prospered Israel and they became a threat 
to Egypt. Um, as Jesse was teaching us, that would have been an unlawful use of governmental authority. Um, but Israel came under bondage because Pharaoh in Egypt thought that they were a threat. And so God remembers his covenant with Abraham and he sends them a deliverer. We know Moses. And in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, meaning Jehovah, self-existing, eternal living one. He said, my name, Jehovah, I did not make, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out of the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. So we, we see Moses um, and Aaron, as Moses felt um, unequal to the task, God gives him Aaron to assist him, and they go before Pharaoh. And God miraculously rescues Israel from Egypt with zero military strength, right? What fighting did Israel have to do to gain their, their freedom? None. Zero. Um, God did it all. And there's a purpose for that. There's a reason. Because all the glory went to him. It was all for a purpose. And the purpose is stated in Exodus 8.1 when God says to tell uh, Pharaoh, I, the Lord, said, said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. God's purpose for freeing Israel was to grant them freedom so that they could then worship and serve God in the wilderness. In Exodus 12, we find that verse 38 of Exodus 12, a mixed multitude went out with them. And it's kind of a sub-note, if you will, a footnote in the scripture, but the word mixed means woof, not as in a dog barking, but in the, in the, the thought process of weaving, we have the warp and the woof, the over and underrunning of the fabric as it intermeshes, meaning when God says there was a mixed multitude that went out with Israel, it was hard to pull them apart and extract them, separate them. And immediately in Exodus 14 and 15, we find God miraculously pardons and saves Israel. They went out with elderly people and children, and they're walking through the wilderness and they come to the Red Sea. It is a death sentence, isn't it? By every imaginable um, human perspective, they're dead men. They come to the Red Sea, they're cut off, and here comes the Egyptian army, the most powerful force in the world, and here they are, shepherds and slaves. They're not ready for battle, and what does God do? He parts the Red Sea, and they walk through on dry ground, and then he swallows up Pharaoh and his army, and there is a miraculous salvation there. And immediately in Exodus 15, 1 through 3, we, we hear a song of praise from Moses. Can you imagine that worship service they had after that? This is what they're saying. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Listen to this. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, Jehovah, is his name. Now, this is chapter 15. 
we go to chapter 16, which is right before the chapter dealing with the waters of Meribah that we're, we're looking at. On the 15th day of the second month. Okay, we're six weeks, maybe seven weeks into our wilderness excursion. Just witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. God drowning Pharaoh and his army. Chapter 16, verse 2. And, and this, this statement of time is right there in your face, right? On the 15th day of the second month, the whole congregation murmurs against Moses and Aaron as they miss the meat and the bread in Egypt. And they say, you have brought us out here to starve us to death. And then in chapter 16, God rains manna from heaven. Think about that. Manna from heaven. And they hoard it. And it stinks. It gets all wormy. And they complain to God. So they have a scarcity of food situation there in chapter 15 or chapter 16. Then chapter 17, we're running low on water. So immediately we assume God has brought us out here to kill us. We're going to die. And that's the context of this psalm. Um, Exodus 17, the fundamental theme is this. Um, Hebrews 4 shows us that this psalm is accurately applied to us today, right now. This is not just a a psalm that's dealing with Old Testament Israel. God has miraculously saved us to serve and worship him. What has changed since he rescued his people from Egypt? Why does God rescue you and I? For what purpose? What is his eternal purpose for saving us? that we might serve him and worship him. He has given us victory over our greatest enemies, namely sin and death. You and I, if we are children of God and we have been saved, we've been pardoned, we do not need to fear the flames of hell. It's going to be a little warm in here this morning without the air conditioner working. That's the worst we get if we're children of God. We don't have to fear the flames of hell. He had earned Israel's worship. And yet at the end of that chapter, as we read it in Psalm 95, we find these words. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. What work? They had literally just seen manna from heaven, Pharaoh destroyed, and within days, they're complaining. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14 says this. Listen to this carefully. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Minus who? Anybody remember? There were a few that made it into the promised land, but very few. Paul reminds the reader here that most were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. You know, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, who are we examples for? Have you thought about that? Who are we examples for? What are our grandchildren going to look back at and talk about regarding the church in America in 2020, 2021? Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation 
Um, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability with the temptation. He will also provide the way of escape that ye may be able to endure it. Therefore, brethren, flee from idolatry. So Psalm 95 is, is a contrast between biblical worship, that is worship that pleases God, and false worship or idolatry. And the, the foundation, if you will, of false worship is a lack of gratefulness. Remember we read in Romans chapter 1, what is the crime that ultimately leads um, unregenerate man to rebellion against God? They were not grateful. So the question before us this morning is, is how do we worship individually? And we gather corporately. I'm talking about how do we view worship and how do we worship God? There are five points from the first eight verses that I want to give you for your encouragement and, uh, and your edification. So verse uh, one and two, we read, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. We see, first of all, an invitation to come. In those two verses, how many times do we see it? Do you see it there? Twice. What is scripture doing when it repeats itself? Listen, right? Listen up. Oh, come, let us sing. Verse 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. This leads to an immensely important question, and that is this. How do we come? We see the invitation here, and this is the Holy Spirit um, directing David to write these words. Come into the presence of the Lord. How do we do that? How do we do it? David says in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I was thinking about... Um, this verse in the context that we see both Isaiah and Isaiah chapter six. Remember when he's, he's in the temple and he has a vision and the train of the Lord fills the temple. And you remember what he says, the seraphim are repeating the same thing that we hear from John's account in revelation chapter four, when the, the, the 24 elders are before the throne and they're all, Praising God, and, and what are they saying regarding who God is? Holy, holy, holy. Now, as you think about this, our invitation to come, we hear a lot of um, a lot of comments regarding "come as you are," right? But guess what? We can't stay as we are. There's a problem. David says, "Who can ascend into the holy?" Hill of God, only those with clean hands and a pure heart. I don't have that myself. So I have a problem. There is a gap that cannot be bridged by me. So how do we come? God is holy, 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 and I am guilty, guilty, guilty. There is a a holy apartness from him to us. And yet he graces us with the invitation to come. This double invitation to come does not supersede the statement of God's character, which is holy, holy, holy. We must be changed. We can't go to God as we are. There's a problem with that concept of come as you are. Yes, we may come as we are, but we will not remain as we are. And that often gets left out, doesn't it? 
He changes us. If any man be in Christ, he remains as he is. Oh, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Listen to this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Good comment from Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan writer. He says this, you do not glorify God as God unless you come into his presence with much fear and reverence for his great name. Fear and worshiping God is so necessary that many times in Scripture we find that the very worship of God is called the fear of God. What do we make of that? There is um, an incredibly important balance to be struck here, isn't there? On one hand, we find Scripture tells us to refer to him as Father, Father, Abba, Father. He is our dad. But on the other hand, we find, and there is no contradiction here, but we read of um, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who bring strange fire and God kills them dead. Uzzah grabbing the Ark of the Covenant and God strikes him dead. How do we strike that balance? And in, in today, we see this a lot. Worship has become so relaxed, so casual, that there's an absolute loss of reverence for who God is. If we see God for who he is in Scripture, it, it should drive us to an awe and a reverence for who he is. Not this casual, how you doing? As we, walk, as we come into his presence, there is there's a balance between who he is and our recognition of that and who we are and our recognition for what we are, filthy sinners. And there is a, a gap that can only be bridged through a mediator. And there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus. We must have a high priest, and we have one in Hebrews 4. 13 through 16, this same passage that is um, a commentary, if you will, on Psalm 95. It says this, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, of him to whom we must give account. Think about that for a second. When you come into the presence of God, there is no hiding. When God says to me, you are naked and exposed, what does that tell us? But he, he, it tells us that he knows what I was thinking last week that dishonored him. He knows that I slandered somebody behind their back, even though they didn't know it. He knows the deepest, darkest recesses of my heart. Everything is exposed to him. How do we come to the presence of God without being in utter shame? The writer continues, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because what he's saying is as soon as we know that God sees us naked and exposed with every fault, every failure, every sin right before his eyes, the immediate impact of that is I do what? What do I do? Humanly speaking, we go fellowship with the Lord like Adam and Eve did after they sinned? No, what do we do? We shrink back. We pull back. He says, and, and Paul says this, hold your ground. Stand firm with your confession because you have a high priest. You don't have to run. Why? Because he is interceding for us. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every aspect or who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, think about this, guys. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
how can I be a shamed sinner and, and be with, with God in his very presence? And that's what this says right here. Let us come into his presence. That's the, the Hebrew right there for before his face. The invitation is to come into the presence of God before his face and fellowship with him as a sinner. The only way we do that, and, and all the Old Testament imagery points us to that. We must have a high priest. We cannot come to God with filthy hands. We can't do it. As we think about worship and preparing ourselves, how often do we come to the Lord's house without having confessed our sin, without having thought about my dirty hands and my impure heart and ask God to prepare me to worship for him? That's what I mean by being callous and casual in coming to the Lord. We can do that. Have you ever, have you ever done that before? Come into his house oh, another Sunday. To our own shame. The mediator that's typified in the high priest reminds us of both the perfect holiness of God and our own vileness at the same time. And when I see that, when I see these two truths side by side, then I can begin to plumb the depths of what it is to worship God. Because for me to be able to fellowship with him in his presence, he has changed me. And if he has changed me, then I have a reason to come and sing with joy, to be overcome with joy, to make a joyful noise. Now, some of us make noise when we sing. <laughs> Guilty is charged. But that singing is to the Lord. And there's a couple reasons there I want you to see why we are to make a joyful noise. Look at the meaning of the word joyful noise. It is the war cry of triumph. Our joy as we praise God, is based on the fact that he has already guaranteed the victory. Now think about what Israel was about to embark on. God had just demolished their greatest enemy. Was their fight over? Were they done fighting as God is sending them into the promised land? No, there were many, many wars left to fight. But joy looks forward to the ultimate victory. And why? Because what did God promise them? What did he promise Israel? I will bring you into the land of Canaan, and I will give it to you as an inheritance. What has God promised you? What has he promised us? We often confuse happiness and joy and mix them up. They're vastly different. Happiness is based and more concerned with our circumstances, isn't it? How many of you are happy this morning because your circumstances are just awesome? All is well. No issues. No problems. No financial issues. Living your best life now. Happiness is concerned with my circumstances. Joy looks beyond the now to the kept promises of God. Joy takes us beyond the circumstances of the now. And it lets us look to the finished work of God. Worship should take us, if you think about this, guys, worship should take us into the very throne room of God because that is where we are going to spend eternity, in his presence, praising him for all eternity. Now, it blows my mind to think about how I will ever stay awake for that. Right? How do we never grow weary of worshiping God for all eternity? Well, the very fact that I would ask that question tells you my mind and my reasoning is corrupted by sin, isn't it? But why do we have joy? The writer says, because Jesus is the rock of our salvation. I don't know if you guys remember this. In 1986, Chevy started a new campaign ad um, with the song, Like a Rock. You remember that? How many of you wanted to buy a Chevy because of Bob Seger, Like a Rock commercial? I mean, Ram, Ford, nobody cared. And, and with the concept of that rock came pretty, pretty um, – compelling ad, wasn't it? You buy a Chevy and it's like a rock. 
What does that mean? It never moves? It can't get out of its own way? No. When we think of rock, we think of immovable. We think of safe. We think of stable. We think of being out of reach. We think of a refuge from the storm. David says we have joy because Jesus is the rock of our salvation. No matter what my circumstances are, that rock can't change. And therefore, it should, it should cause me to have joy in my heart. Worshiping with singing is a natural overflow of joy from the regenerate heart. In Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, if you want to talk about um, evidences of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Well, this is interesting. Here we go. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We, uh, as we studied the first chapter of Samuel, we found that there was a little confusion there, wasn't there? Hannah was filled with the Spirit, but she was accused of being drunk. Be not drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Here are the proofs of that, by the way. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And then look at this, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is the root of worship. If you're not thankful this morning for what God has done for you in your life, you're not worshiping. You can't have joy if you're not thankful. What has he done? Retrace your steps. Some of you are a little older than others, and there's more steps to retrace. But go all the way back as far as you can remember and watch how God has directed every step and protected protected you and brought you to himself. In spite of all of the circumstances and the details and the opportunities to derail your life along the way, he has kept you. And it should cause us to sing. Joy should cause us to sing. They sing before the throne of God. Why? Because they are filled with joy. Charles Spurgeon says this, It is to be feared that very much of religious singing is not unto the Lord, but unto the ear of the congregation. Think about that. Above all things, we must in our service of song take care that we all offer or that all we offer is with the heart's sincerest and most fervent intent directed to the Lord himself. You look at much of modern day worship and what is it? What is it focused on? The congregation, the hearer here. Right. We want to be entertained. Worship is not for us, is it? It's to him. And that brings me to my second point, verse 3. Biblical worship must be directed to God alone. Verse 3, for the Lord Jehovah is a great God and the great king above all gods. What is repeated twice here again? God's greatness. Biblical worship must be directed to God alone. He is supreme. He is sovereign. Jeremiah 10, 7 says, Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. We sing a song about that. Mm -hmm. There is none like you. God is great. Romans 1 18 through 24, we find this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known of God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature. There's the key. Worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God is a jealous God. We don't talk about that often. But what do we mean when we talk about the fact that he is jealous? It means that that he is um, completely and imminently worthy of our praise, and he does not like it when it goes where it doesn't belong. Think about the dishonoring of God when we worship the creature versus the creator. He is not willing to share his glory with lesser gods. He is a great God above all gods. Now, this is not to say that there are other gods, as in real gods. But this is talking about others that are in supreme authority, like rulers and judges. We talked about this morning. He is sovereign over all, including government. And he's not willing to share his glory with quote-unquote lesser gods. He doesn't want the remnants of our worship, the leftover of our worship. Titus 2, 11 through 13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem, or for he who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. Worship directs us to God and should take us right into the throne room. I love this quote by Thomas Watson, um, the old Puritan writer, and it's written in the old English, but you'll get the gist of it. He says, quote, the world is a great inn in our vernacular hotel. We are guests in this inn. Travelers, when they meet in their inn, do not spend all their time in speaking about the inn, right? They are to lodge there but a few hours and are gone. They speak about their home and the country to which they are traveling. So when we meet together, we should not be talking only about the world. We are to leave this presently. We should talk about our heavenly country. Think about that in relation to worship. The reason God grants us the worship together of the body of Christ is this is a foretaste right now of what we will experience in all eternity. It is, it is a reminder of our rest that is to come. You had a great quote by Aquinas mm-hmm. on the difference between worshiping on Saturday and worshiping on Sunday, and the fact that Christ is pictured as our Sabbath rest, we gather together on Sunday to be reminded of the fact that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. We're going somewhere else. And so when we get together, let not our minds be focused on this world. They need to go where we're going. This is transient. You guys were getting older. We're, we're one day closer to dying. If the Lord tarries and does not come, we will grow old and die. Some of us will be taken young before we see old age. This life is so fleeting and quick. The older you get, the quicker it goes. Have you noticed that? When you're a little kid, I remember thinking as a 10-year-old, I'm never making it to 12 where I can get my hunter's license and start shooting things, animals. And then I get to 12, I get my license. I'm like, I'm never going to make it to 16 when I can get my driver's license. 16. And then the next milestone after the other. And the older you get, the quicker it goes. Tell me I'm wrong. Worship should direct us to the throne room of God because that's where we're headed. That's where we're going. When we gather together and when we worship privately, 
We go into our closets. It should take us to the throne room because that's where we're headed, guys. Point number three, biblical worship exalts God for who he is and what he has done. Scripture says, verse four of this, right on cue. Well done. In, in, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. What are these two verses telling us about God and his sovereignty over creation? <clears throat> it is in his hand. What does that mean? That means tomorrow I need to get to work on saving the planet. That's what our, our society tells us. That's what our culture is preaching, screaming at us. The end is near. We have 10 years. If you don't shut your car off and stop emitting, 10 years we're all going to die. That's what we're hearing. Back, by the way, back in the 1970s, it was the coming ice age. You see the picture of that Time magazine that showed um, the frozen over world. It's in his hand. The sea is his. The hands formed. His hands formed the dry land. He is sovereign over creation. And what does that mean? So April 22nd, the week before last, um, some of you may or may not work for companies that celebrate Earth Day. Mine happened to. That does not mean I partook, but nonetheless, it was a big deal. And uh, a lot of folks don't realize this. We often hear the term Mother Earth. Have you heard that before? Mother Earth. Seems like such a quaint saying, right? What are we really saying? Well, who is Mother Earth? You do a little studying and a little um, deep diving Really, Mother Earth is another name for the goddess Gaia. You say, why? Who's Gaia? I don't hear anybody talking about Gaia. It's Mother Earth. There is a, a, a good article on Table Talk written by Peter Jones, and he says this, the one-ism. One-ism is Hinduism, where we talk about being one with the universe. The one-ism of secular environmentalism is capturing the mind of the rising generation. Think about how many of our young people are scared to death of our planet warming. The one-ism of secular environmentalism is capturing the mind of the rising generation raised in grade schools through college on the notion of quote-unquote sustainability that worships Mother Earth and flattens the difference between creatures made in God's image and those who are not. The creature being worshipped more than the creator. Does God need our help to set the thermostat? The God who set the earth in its place and Perfect relationship to the sun. Anybody know how far the earth is from the sun? If the earth is any further away from the sun, what happens? Ice age. Uninhabitable. If the earth is any closer to the sun, what happens? It's a lot hotter than it is in here right now. Right? So how did it get there? Have you thought about that? We're, stop, we're, we're cutting off the production of beef because beef flatulence causes carbon emissions, which is warming the planet. Let's get to work on that. I, I found this. I wanted, I wanted to, to just illustrate the absurdity of this. This is a, a paragraph from an article from the Huffington Post, and I don't frequent the Huffington Post, and this is why. These are science experts, quote, the earth is already a statistical anomaly. Can't explain it. Something that at present shines out as a blip on the norm of space. Well, a new study looking into the atmospheres of exoplanets has revealed just how lucky we really are. The team from Sorbonne University has found that were earth to be just the tiniest amount further from the sun, it would be unrecognizable. 
inhospitable ball of ice locked into a permanent ice age. Led by Martin Turbett, the team examined how CO2 would react in planets that were slightly closer or further away from their host stars. What they found was that even a small adjustment further away could cause the CO2 to condense at the poles, forming permanent ice caps. Without any CO2 entering the atmosphere, this would drastically alter the greenhouse effect and in turn would fail to warm up the planet's atmosphere. What's worse is the team finds that this situation would only get worse if the amount of water ice increased. The CO2 would become trapped under the water ice, permanently resulting in a planet that would be stuck in a never-ending ice age. Earth then is, is in just the right place. It isn't too far away that its CO2 has been trapped in the ice, and yet it's not too close that the greenhouse effect went into overdrive and the planet has become too hot. How did it get there? How did it get there? How did, and it's millions of miles, the sun and the earth in distance from each other, and yet it's in the perfect location. And we just got lucky. Think of the insanity of that. When scripture tells us in his hand are the depths, it was in his hand that he opened up the deep and flooded Pharaoh and his armies. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. Listen, listen to, and I can hear Jeremiah responding to that article on the Huffington Post. If he was on social media, listen to this. Jeremiah 5, 21 through 25. Hear this, so foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this is the heart of the issue. Jeremiah cuts right to it. This people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord, our God, who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you. The real heart of the issue, and our culture cries out, save the planet. Because our culture does not believe God is sovereign over his creation. We must do something to save ourselves. We only have 10 years left. What we're really saying is this, God is not sovereign over me. If we're saying that God is not sovereign over his creation and he has lost control, what we're really saying is God is not sovereign over me. That leads me to the next point, point four. Biblical worship surrenders everything to God. Look at verse six. Biblical worship surrenders everything to God. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The picture of worship here is to prostrate or kneel before God as the sovereign creator, redeemer. In Romans 14, um, 7 through 12, this is a response to the debate that was going through the church at Rome regarding the controversy over diets. You know how Paul settles that? You guys are fighting over whether or not this can be eaten or that can be eaten. You know what the answer to it is? Paul says, we are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord. We don't belong to each other. We belong to God. Who am I to judge my brother when I answer to God? And he says in verse 11, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to each other? No, to God. He is our maker. He is our maker and has right of ownership over us. 
1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are, listen to this, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in what? Your body. Worship surrenders my entire being to God. We have a way of spiritualizing away the physical, but worship involves surrendering my physical body to God. Why? Because he bought it. He redeemed it. This physical body, though it's dying, though it's aging, belongs to him, doesn't it? Can I serve God with my mind and my heart, but my body is not along for the ride? Worship surrenders our whole being to God. Romans 12. I I asked this question a month ago. How do we define worship? Mark took us right to Romans 12. You remember that? Well done, brother. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual worship. We spiritually worship by presenting our bodies as a sacrifice. Do not, how do we do that? He answers, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Worship surrenders my entire being to God in submission. It is prostrating. Let us worship. To prostrate, to kneel in reverence, is a picture of submission and subjection. When the enemy bows down before the conquering king, what does he do? You win. It's all yours. Take it. Real genuine worship surrenders what does not want to be surrendered. And it prostrates us before God. In Matthew 6, 1 through 18, Jesus lays out what this looks like. I'm not going to read these 18 verses, but he deals with three subjects in Matthew 6. This is a Sermon on the Mount. He lays out what surrender really looks like in worship, and it's universal. He says, when you give, what do you do? Let everybody see you do it. One of the reasons why we have uh, an offering box over here is so that we're not passing a plate so everybody can be looking over everyone's shoulder. What that check say? Hmm. How much did they give? Man, he folded the bill in instead of out. I can't see what denomination it was. People don't do that, do they? When God says, and Jesus in Matthew 6 says, when you give, don't let the left hand know what your right hand is doing. Why? Because we're not giving to be seen of men like the Pharisees. They have their reward. But give in secret so that your father who sees in secret will, will reward you openly. You have given. Then he says, when you pray, go into your closet. Why? It's not that we don't have public prayer. But prayer, what is prayer? Prayer is asking God for all the good things that I might have my best life now. That's what we hear. No, prayer is bringing me into direct submission to God. That's the purpose of prayer. Yes, do we lay out our needs? Absolutely. But before we ask the Lord to give us this daily bread, we say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first thing we're doing when we're praying is we are bringing ourselves into subjection and submission to the will of God. Then we lay out our needs. And then after he says, when you pray, go into your closet, he says, when you fast. Fasting is not a very popular subject these days. When was the last time you heard a message on fasting? Jesus didn't say, when I go away, stop fasting. He said, when you fast, do this. Wash your face. But what did the Pharisees do? They got all dirty and and drawn looking, shrunken down. I'm so weak. I haven't had a meal in who knows how long. I'll tell you. If you want to ask, I'll tell you when the last meal I I had. 
so that people would look at them and say, oh, they're so spiritual. But, but those three things, giving, praying, and fasting, think about what those entail regarding your person. Giving encompasses everything I have. If, if all of my possessions are subject to God, everything in my hand, that means God has all of my possessions. What, what doesn't have me? My possessions. If all of my possessions are subject to God, we're giving them to God, we're submitted to him and all of our finances and all of our wealth or lack thereof, it's all his Prayer, I'm submitted to him in my spiritual life. My entire being is submitted to him. Fasting, I'm bringing my body into subject to the spiritual. Was Jesus under the Holy Spirit's influence when he was led into the wilderness to be tempted? Do you remember what he was doing? Fasting. He was fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. He laid aside the physical need, that hunger craving for something far more important. Again, it's just another aspect of subjecting ourselves to God. But in those three things, we see every aspect of our life, don't we? The physical, the spiritual, and then everything I possess. What is not to be subjected to God? If we are to really worship God, How do we answer that question? What in my life is not subjected to him? What in my life is outside of his authority? What in my life does not belong to him? The answer to that question answers how we worship him. Biblical worship hears and obeys God. Last point. Biblical worship hears and obeys Notice what he says in verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. What does it mean when it says we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his hand? Again, there's that picture of sovereignty, control. Is the Lord in sovereign control of his sheep? In John 10, through 30, at that time at the feast, the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, listen, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep, what? Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall, what? Never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. He is our God. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture of his hand. Today, if you will hear, if you hear, what do sheep do? Sheep hear. So here's the question for us this morning. How do we hear him? How do we hear him? Briefly, and we're going to wrap up in just a couple of minutes. How are we to hear him? Colossians 3, 16 through 17 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to your hearts in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here is the pattern in Scripture. Hear and do. Sheep, hear my voice, and they what? 
They, they stand there, never move. My sheep hear my voice and they follow. The pattern for Scripture and for God's sheep, his people, is that they hear his word and they act. They hear and they do. They hear, they obey. So how do we do that? We talk about hearing God's word. Are we listening for something special out of the celestial cloud? No. It's the mundane. It is the foolishness of preaching. It is sitting in a hot, stuffy church on a Sunday morning listening to a boring man drone on and on. God uses the preaching of his word. But here's the key. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Is that a passive activity? What are we doing? How does the word of Christ dwell in us richly? It's saturating our lives with God's word. It must fill us richly. In other words, abundantly. Well, we're to hear it taught and preached, but it's more than that. If I am nutritionally deficient and I go to Lowe's food and I walk into the the produce aisle and it's just beautiful, all the green stuff just flowing over from the shelves and you're like, man, I could use a salad. I'm nutritionally deficient, so... This is just what I need. And you walk around and see all the different types of produce that you can have. And then you you turn around and you walk out the store. That is some great looking vegetables. Aren't we like that with God's word sometimes? Because the word doesn't matter to us until we take it off the shelf. We put it in our cart. We go out the door. Hopefully you paid and you didn't steal it. You go home, you cut it up, you serve it, you eat it, and you take it in for yourself. Now, this analogy falls a little short in terms of God's word word being able to be picked from. It is all of Scripture is profitable. But do you see my point? If we don't take it, you can hear it preached all day long. But if you don't pick it up, Take it for yourself, take it home, cut it up, dice it, slice it. Think about what does this mean? Was he right? Was he wrong? Did he did he misinterpret that passage? What does that passage really mean? And most importantly, what does it mean for me? How does it apply to me? Then we will miss out on it. We're to receive it with thanks. We're to treasure it. We're to seek to understand it. And then importantly, to obey it. Here's the warning. Do not pardon your hearts. What did we read in 1 Corinthians 10? This was written for what? Our example. Don't harden your heart when you hear his voice. Our responsibility with God's word is to receive it with thanksgiving. It is for me It is God's word for my life. It is authoritative. It is giving me direction for first to hear and then to do. Don't do this. Don't bristle at it. It doesn't doesn't mean we understand every bit of it, does it? Has God commanded us to understand every word of Scripture? We grow in our understanding as we mature. And we handle and take in the meat versus the milk. We grow. Our understanding expands. But does God say, that day when you get to a point of understanding, I want you to obey? Is that what what the scripture says? Wait until you understand it and then obey? No. God tells us to obey now. Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God and find the knowledge of God. 
as we close this morning, um, the prevailing question is, who are we worshiping? There is worship happening in every one of our lives. So who or what are we worshiping? Do we go to God through the mediating perfection of Christ? This is, by the way, the pearl of great price found right here. This is the gospel. Christ is the rock. He is that perfect mediator that allows a wretched sinner like me, like you, to go into the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. That's the gospel. Do we worship God alone or are there other things competing for his time? That's a tough one. Is God our priority? What else is competing with him? Do we exalt God for who he is and what he has done? Have we surrendered everything to him? Does it all belong to him? And are we hearing and obeying or are we responding in rebellion? Those are the questions that by the spirit of God, um, I pray we'll get insight into this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you tell us what pleases you. You don't leave us in the dark. Lord, we thank you for the Savior that gives us perfect access into your presence, that we filthy, wicked sinners can stand without shame in your presence, not because we're proud or arrogant, but because we have been washed and cleansed by the great high priest who is our mediator. Father, I pray that you would help us to experience the deepness, the richness of this here and now. As we gather to worship corporately, Lord, and in our personal worship at home with our families, by ourselves, Lord, that you would deepen our worship for you and our understanding of what it is to worship you. Thank you for this time together, Lord, and for um, your amazing word. We ask that you would drive these truths deep into our hearts that we might do what you command us to do. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.